Okay, Mark chapter 9, um, page 1014 in the Church Bible. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied round his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness... How can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Well, good morning, everyone. Can I just add one notice to uh, what Nathan said earlier on? At 4.30 today, this afternoon, we've got a checkpoint prayer meeting here in the church. It'd be lovely to see you, and that will be followed by tea and toast before the evening service. So it'd be lovely to see you there if you are able Let's pray together, and then we'll be looking at God's word. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you again this morning for your word. Father, we thank you that your word is truth. Father, we thank you that you are a God who cannot lie. And Father, we thank you for the great grace that we receive through your word. And this morning, particularly the grace of the warnings that you give us in your word. Father, these are serious verses, verses that we've heard already. uh, Verses about grave matters, about heaven, hell, where we spend our eternities. Father, you don't play games with us. You are gracious to us and with us. You're so clear in your word. And we pray this morning, Father God, that your Holy Spirit would be amongst us and in us as Nathan has already prayed. We ask, Father God, that in your great grace and in your mercy, that you would pluck some of us, maybe even from the mouth of hell this morning. But for all of us, Father, we pray that we'd be encouraged, encouraged in our Christian walk, encouraged to take sin seriously. Father, we thank you that you are such a God. Help us to listen well, help me to speak well, For we ask it that Jesus might be glorified and that his kingdom might be extended. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think it would be fair to say, in the opinion of many, that the modern evangelical church, or at least the modern evangelical church in the West, has a holiness problem. In Leviticus 11, verse 44, our God gives his people this command. He says there, be holy, for I am holy. And in case we think, well, that doesn't apply to me as a New Testament Christian, we're not going to get away that lightly, because Peter, in 1 Peter 1.16, repeats these words. He quotes it, as we'll see in a little while. Be holy, for I am holy. It's not a suggestion or a request. 
It's an instruction, it's a command that the Lord makes to his people. Just as our God is a holy God, we are to be a holy people. But maybe this morning it wouldn't be unfair to suggest that it's a command that we, as God's people today, are often slow to obey. Recent years in the evangelical church, there's been an emphasis on what is sometimes called gospel-centeredness. And gospel-centeredness is the the desire to emphasize the true and glorious fact that we're saved from our sins by grace alone through faith alone. Gospel-centeredness has been a desire to emphasize the centrality of this wonderful truth. The centrality of the truth that we're saved through Christ's life and death and resurrection alone. So this movement, this gospel-centeredness movement, has desired to underline the fact that we contribute nothing to our salvation. No good work on our part can achieve salvation. No good work on our part can add to our salvation. Salvation is simply a gift of God received only by faith. Simply living a good life or a holy life cannot earn forgiveness of sin. We simply accept by faith what Christ has done and we are secure. We are justified, adopted, reconciled, forgiven eternally. And these are glorious truths. These are the heart of the Bible's message of salvation. And in one sense, it's impossible to overemphasize these truths. It's impossible to overemphasize the gospel of grace. And yet some have argued, it might be argued, that this gospel-centered focus has led another crucial Bible truth to be forgotten or at least to be neglected. And the truth I'm talking of is this truth, that holiness in the Christian life is not an optional extra. Rather, on the other hand, through the power of the Spirit, God's people are to strive to live holy, righteous, and godly lives. Perhaps we've been so keen to stress, rightly, that a holy life cannot earn our salvation, that we've forgotten to emphasize that true salvation always leads to increasing holiness. We've rightly remembered that the ground of our salvation, the root of our salvation, is Christ and his work alone. But perhaps we've been prone to forget that the result of our salvation, the fruit of true salvation, is always increasing holiness and Christ-likeness over the long term. We'll think about that again in a moment. In 2012, the American pastor, Kevin DeYoung, some of you will have heard of him or heard him, released a book called A Hole in Our Holiness, Hole, H-O-L-E. In chapter 1, Kevin DeYoung wrote this, The hole in our holiness is that we don't don't care very much about it. Passionate exhortation to pursue gospel-driven holiness is barely heard in most of our churches. I'm talking about the failure failure of Christians 
especially younger generations, and especially those most disdainful of, quote, religion, unquote, and, quote, legalism, unquote, to take seriously one of the great aims of our redemption and one of the required evidences of eternal life, namely our holiness. So de Jung is suggesting that the matter of holiness is largely neglected in evangelical churches and evangelical pulpits today. And so as a result, holiness is largely neglected by us as Christians, especially Christians from younger generations. And it's always nice to call yourself younger. I think Kevin DeYoung means people of his generation, my generation, and below and younger. But the Bible is full of commands to God's people that we are to be a holy people. We are to take the matter of holiness seriously. In Matthew 5, verse 48, the Lord Jesus Christ himself says to us, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, quoting Leviticus, be holy because I am holy. Romans 12 verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. As God's people, we are to hate sin, especially in ourselves. Sometimes we find it easy to hate sin in the world or in others. We're to hate sin, especially in ourselves. We're to love righteousness. The writer to the Hebrews says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, verse 14. Sunday evenings, we've been looking at John's first letter. And in John's first letter, we're reminded that if we sin habitually with, with little or no true repentance resulting from that, there's no reason to assume that we are true Christians. We need to remember again and again that Jesus died for sinners like you and me. We've been gloriously saved from the penalty of our sin, from the punishment that we should receive for sinning against the just and holy God. But maybe we're quicker to forget this, that, that through his death, Jesus also freed us from the power of sin so that we might live increasingly holy lives. Through Jesus' death, through the Holy Spirit living in his people, we are empowered to fight sin in our lives. So we might put it this way, Jesus died for us, Christ died for us, not simply or not only that we might be forgiven. Christ died for us so that we might live righteously. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 
So Kevin DeYoung says once again, my fear is that as we rightly celebrate and in some quarters rediscover all that Christ has saved us from, we are giving little thought and making little effort concerning all that Christ has saved us to. Shouldn't those most passionate about the gospel and God's glory also be those most dedicated to the pursuit of godliness? I worry, says de Young, that there is an enthusiasm gap and no one seems to mind. Where perhaps are we in this matter as a church and as individual Christians? Are we urging each other, encouraging each other to greater Christ-likeness? And when necessary, in love and in grace, are we admonishing each other? When we see ungodliness in another brother or sister in Christ, are we pointing that out to them and lovingly uh, asking them to repent of it? We need, of course, to deal with the logs in our own eyes before we worry about the specks in the eyes of others. But are we loving each other enough that we admonish each other when we see sin? Are our personal prayers, are our home groups, are our congregational prayers, are our prayer meetings full of these prayers? Lord, please give me, give my family, give my home group, give my church a passion for holiness. Please make us more like Christ. When was the last time I prayed that way? When was the last time you prayed that way? We are God's dearly beloved people if we're Christians here this morning. We've been bought by the blood of Christ. We're to pursue holiness. We're to pursue holiness. And as we do so, we're to pursue it depending upon the death of Christ and the empowering of the Holy Spirit to do so. We're to pursue holiness, not to work for our salvation, but to give evidence of the reality of our salvation, to bring glory to God and to give evidence of the power of the gospel to a lost world. I'm afraid that's all by way of introduction. But Mark chapter 9 verses 42 to 50 and these are really difficult verses. Some of them are hard to listen to, difficult to listen to. Uh, a couple of them at the end are hard to understand, as, as we'll see when we get there. But these are weighty verses. They're, they're deep verses. They're grave verses. They're important verses. Verses about where we are going to spend our eternities. In this part of Mark's gospel, we've seen that Mark is dealing with the subject of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're going to see that following Christ means being radical with our sin. Following Christ means being radical with sin, and especially our own sin. Three points then this morning for the remainder of our time. First of all, following Christ means dealing with the sin in ourselves which would harm others. And I'm thinking especially of verse 42. Following Christ means dealing with the sin in ourselves which would harm others. Verse 42, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown 
into the sea. So, verse 42, Jesus gives us, a, gives us a warning about causing others to sin. Jesus talks about little ones, and I think here he's talking about young believers, particularly those who are young in years, perhaps young in the faith, perhaps both. But I think the principle Jesus is going to lay out here could be applied, could be extended to our relationships with all believers. To stumble means to sin, especially the sin of falling away from following Jesus. It means the sin of shipwrecking one's faith. To cause to stumble means to entice or to trap or to lead a young believer into such sin. Jesus says that we must never lead another believer, especially a young believer, into sin. We must never be the cause of a young Christian falling away from the Lord. In fact, Jesus is very brutal here. He says it will be preferable to die a gruesome death than to experience the Lord's wrath against us for such a sin. It's better not to live, Jesus is saying, than to cause a young Christian to fall away from the faith. One commentator says, to be the cause of another's spiritual shipwreck is so serious an offense that a quick drowning would be preferable to the fate it deserves. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying that this is an unforgivable sin or the unforgivable sin. But Jesus is saying this, I think. We don't want to even conceive of facing the just and fair wrath of God against us for such a sin. We need to ensure that we do not cause a young Christian to fall into sin and to fall away from the faith. Sadly, on occasion, we might see professing Christians openly and unashamedly encouraging others to sin. Sadly, that's what we see amongst the hierarchy or much of the hierarchy of the Church of England at the moment. The national leadership telling their flock that, that monogamous homosexual relationships are good and pleasing to God. These men are in a fearful position. They are leading young Christians into sin. But sadly, on occasion, sometimes as confessing Christians, we might we might lead people into less obvious sin. But Jesus is saying that people who deliberately lead other Christians into sin, it would be better for such people to suffer a gruesome death than to harm young believers through such teaching. Such comments like this, move in with your boyfriend, after all, everybody's doing it. Go out with a non-Christian, it won't really matter. Don't worry about going to church on Sunday. It doesn't really matter if you play sport instead. After all, you'll still be a Christian. All of these are pieces of advice that could cause a young confessing believer to fall away. Sadly, how often have we seen young professing Christians fall away from the faith because they have gone out with a non-Christian or they have substituted another activity for meeting with God's people on a Sunday. It should, should sadden us and lead us to pray 
and to encourage such people. More frequently, though, perhaps we are tempted to lead other Christians to sin in more subtle, more thoughtless ways. There are so many aspects of our lives as God's people that we need to be careful about when we are around other believers, especially young believers. Our conduct, our example, our habits, our words, our humor, our hobbies, our hangouts, our teaching, our doctrine, our clothes, our friends, our relationships, our conversations, our own sins. We must ensure that that our conduct, our lifestyles, are not leading other Christians into sin. Perhaps some of us here this morning are protective towards our Christian liberties. Maybe we're protective of our Christian liberties, where we eat and what we eat, where we drink and what we drink, where uh, and what we're entertained by, where we are and what we do on Sundays, who we mix with, and so on. And it may be that we have liberty as Christians to engage in certain activities without sinning against God's word or against our own conscience. And what's more, we might be mature enough to resist the the specific temptations that may accompany some of these activities. We may be mature enough to exercise such freedoms, but we need to be confident that exercising such freedoms does not lead young Christians, less mature Christians, perhaps less strong Christians, into sin or to fall away. Jesus says that it is better not to live than to cause a spiritual problem for a boy or a girl, for a young believer. We need to remember as God's people that none of us live in isolation. There is no such thing as a sin which affects only ourselves. There's no such thing as an action which affects only ourselves. Our personal sins, our personal actions, they affect our spouses, our children, our families, our communities, and our churches. And we must not sin lightly. We must not live lightly as if our choices did not matter. We must be quick to repent of any sin, particularly because it would impact others, especially young believers. And neither should we exercise our Christian liberties if we believe that doing so could cause a young believer to stumble. That's our first point. Our second point then, number two. Following Christ means dealing with the sin in us which would harm ourselves Verses 43 to 48. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell, where the the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. So in short then, to summarize, in these verses, the Lord is emphasizing the seriousness of sin and the need to do whatever is necessary to deal with it in our lives. Now, the Lord is not saying here that we earn our salvation 
by fighting sin, as if fighting sin will earn us brownie points with the Lord to achieve salvation. He's not saying that a successful fight against sin will earn eternal life for us. But I think the Lord is saying here that our approach to sin, our approach to fighting sin, is evidence of whether we are really true Christians or not. If there's something in our lives that's causing us to stumble to sin, then the Lord is saying we need to deal with it drastically. And the fact that we take up such a fight against our sin is evidence that we are truly God's people. On the other hand, perhaps more negatively, if we aren't bothered by our sin, if we're indifferent to our sin, then there's every reason to believe that we are not really saved people. Perhaps at times we're tempted to say something like this, well, my sin doesn't really matter. I'm under grace anyway. Jesus has paid the price. And if someone were to speak and to act like this, there would be good reason to doubt that that person is genuinely a Christian. To be blunt and to use Jesus' words here, I think there would be every reason to believe that such a person was headed for an eternity in hell, as Jesus says. Now, don't mishear me. I don't want anyone to misunderstand me this morning. Real Christians do sin. We're not perfectionists. The Bible is not teaching perfectionism, the truth that Christians will never sin again, or we can reach a point in our Christian lives where we will never sin. That's not realistic biblically, it's not true biblically, and it's not realistically in lived out experience. I have, you have indwelling sin. You have sinful, I have sinful tendencies that remain in us after we become Christians, after conversion. Many of us know our growth in Christ-likeness is a process. It's gradual. It's often frustratingly slow. And we know that sometimes in our lives we can even go backwards for a period. And we also know that Christians are no longer under condemnation for our sin. There is no condemnation now or for all eternity. And gloriously, the Lord Jesus Christ paid the price fully, the penalty for our sin. But if we're true Christians, we will be bothered when we sin. We will increasingly hate our sin. We will truly repent of our sin. We will seek God's forgiveness for our sin. We will want to sin less. We will want to become more like Jesus in this regard. Increasingly, we will not sin lightly or in a carefree way. We, we will consider what we must do to avoid sin. Even when doing what is necessary to avoid sin would seem excessive to the world around us. It's the person who takes their sin seriously who provides evidence of possessing life. That is, provides evidence of possessing eternal life with the Lord. So you might ask, is the Lord saying here that I must literally amputate hands and feet and gouge out my eyes if that would help me to avoid sin? Well, I don't think so. You'll be glad to learn. This is a form of hyperbole. The Lord is exaggerating his illustration to drive home the truth of this lesson with force. 
what Jesus is saying is that our response to sin needs to be drastic. It needs to be dramatic. Our sin needs to be dealt with immediately, decisively, radically, consistently in our lives. A surgeon doesn't hesitate to cut out a cancer for the health of the rest of the body. And likewise, we need to be quick to cut out sin for the sake of our spiritual health and eternal life. My great-uncle, great-uncle Reg, bless him, he died a few years ago. He was diagnosed with a rare cancer. And they amputated one leg below the knee. Drastic surgery. But it saved his life. It gave him a few more years. Humanly speaking, it was better for Uncle Reg to be alive with one and a half legs than to be dead with two whole legs. And the same is true here. The possession of spiritual life is worth any and every sacrifice. Three quotes for you from the past. I think they're powerful. Hopefully they're useful for you too. I say from the past... First one's from Sinclair Ferguson, who's very much still with us. The other two are. There can be no reconciliation between the Christian and sin, and no platform for negotiation. If we do not engage in the effort to conquer it, we may well be sure that it will conquer us. We must put out the fires of sin in our hearts, or we will find ourselves exposed to the flames of hell and separation from God permanently. The Puritan John Owen said, Do you mortify? Mortify means putting sin to death. Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And Jonathan Edwards, the American pastor in the 18th century said, A true and faithful Christian does not make holy living a mere accidental thing. It is his great concern. As the business of the soldier is to fight, so the business of the Christian is to be like Christ. The true and faithful Christian does not make holy living a mere accidental thing. It is his great concern. I found that so convicting. Is it, am I trying to stumble into Christ-likeness as life goes on, or am I pursuing it in God's strength for God's glory? Jesus is saying here, he's challenging us to give up even good things if that will prevent us from sinning. Jesus isn't talking about chopping off hands and feet and gouging out eyes because they're bad things. They're good gifts from the Lord. But if they lead us into sin, in the illustration at least, they must be got rid of. Let's take a quick example. Sorry those of us who like our smartphones, but I'm going to pick on our smartphones. We know that our smartphones can be good things. But for some of us, they're leading us into sin. Some of us are coveting material possessions because of our smartphones. Some of us are lusting after people because of our smartphones. Some of us are engaging in gossip on our smartphones. Some of us are envying the lives of others because of our smartphones. If that's us, get rid of our smartphones. But you might say, well, I couldn't do without it. I stay in touch with others via Facebook and I listen to the odd sermon on it and I read my emails and I I tweet a daily devotional and I get updates from Checkpoint on it and Platform 67. I couldn't do without my smartphone. 
And Jesus says to us, get rid of the smartphone. It's better to be inconvenienced by the loss of your smartphone than to be thrown into hell with your smartphone. It's better, to pick on another example, to be off Facebook than to be thrown into hell with 913 Facebook friends. These are just illustrations. They're examples of, of ways that, or, that we are provoked to sin, as we'll see in a moment. And then we see in verse 48, Jesus tells us that hell is a real place. Hell is a where. It is a place. It is not a state of, of thought. It's not a human tradition, a state of mind, imagination. Hell is a real place, and it is so awful that it can be illustrated with the thought of its inhabitants being eaten forever by worms. It's so awful that it's a place that can be illustrated by the, by the picture of an eternal fire causing pain forever. Now, I don't know literally whether there are worms and fire in hell, but what is often said, and I think is really helpful, that whatever the reality, the reality is at least as bad as the illustration that Jesus is using here. It's a place of eternal destruction. Sadly, some theologians have denied this. But this isn't biblical. The Bible says that just as there is everlasting life for God's people, there is everlasting hell for the unrepentant sinner. So let me challenge us this morning. What drastic action do we need to engage in to be radical with our sin? Perhaps you need to end that friendship that doesn't edify you but tears you down. Perhaps you need to stop reading literature that leads you into dissatisfaction and envy. Perhaps you do need to get rid of that device or phone or perhaps the app on there that leads you into covetousness or gossip or self-image problems or into lust. Perhaps you need to stop watching movies or playing video games that normalize in your mind or trivialize bad language or sexual sin or filthy language. Perhaps you need to go to bed earlier so you're less irritable the next day. Perhaps you need to stop drinking the alcohol that loosens your tongue in ungodly ways. Perhaps you need to ditch your non-Christian boyfriend or girlfriend. Perhaps you need to stop being alone with your girlfriend or boyfriend. Perhaps you need to think of your own illustrations, your own point, your own problems, the ways in which you need to deal drastically with sin. Now, ultimately, we've seen that sin is an issue of the heart. We saw that back in Mark chapter 7. Jesus taught us that. Godliness is not about moral outward behavior primarily. And we pray as God's people that over time the Holy Spirit would change our hearts to be more like Christ's heart so that the temptation to sin would lessen. But Paul says in Romans 13, 14, we are to make no provision for the flesh. In other words, we're to be radical with those things which provoke us, which tempt us into sin. We don't say, picking on the smartphone again, well, there's no reason to get rid of my smartphone because it's actually my heart which is the ultimate problem, not the smartphone. Will you be right in that your greatest need, my greatest need is for heart change, but we're to rid ourselves of anything, even if they're good things, 
that we know have the capacity to provoke our hearts, to stimulate our hearts to sin. We know ourselves to some degree at least. I don't know what that's true of in your life. I know what that's true of in my life. But once we've understood something of those things, those things that would provoke us into sin, let's ensure that we deal with them. Maybe this morning for some of us, being radical with sin means confessing it to Nathan or to John later on so that they can pray with you, they can advise you, they can help hold you accountable before the Lord. But we need to be radical in dealing with our own sin. Not because we're saved by our efforts to be godly, but because the Holy Spirit's empowered hatred of sin and confession of sin and repentance and the Holy Spirit empowered long-term growth in godliness and long-term growth in hatred of our sin, will they give evidence to our salvation? Perhaps this morning you realize that you are headed for the place Jesus describes in these verses. Perhaps this morning you're not a Christian. Perhaps you've never really asked Christ to remove the penalty of your sin or the power of your sin. The Lord Jesus Christ, through his word this morning, says, come to me for forgiveness. Turn from the wrong things in your life. And then the God who cannot lie says he will forgive you. He will take away the price you should have paid for your rebellion against him. On the cross, Jesus received the, the penalty, the price of the sin of all who would come to him in repentance and faith. This morning, maybe you need to turn from your sin and to turn to Christ and his work on the cross. Maybe this morning, you realize that you need to be empowered in your fight against sin uh, because you are not yet a Christian. Come to him and he will empower you to live a life for him. Once we're Christians, we will fall along the way you will sin, I will sin. You will need to turn to the Lord again and again for forgiveness. And the glory of the good news is that our God, our Lord will forgive us. He'll brush us down. He'll empower, empower us once more to fight the good fight of faith. But as God's people, by his power, we will increasingly learn to hate our sin, to turn from our sin, to resist sin and to become more like Jesus. Well, that leaves me with little time to deal with verses 49 and 50. And I'm, I'm not too disappointed because commentators call these among the hardest verses to understand in the New Testament. Um, in fact, when I was doing some preparation, the uh, Anglican uh, Bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, gives 12 possible interpretations of these verses. So, uh, we up for all 12 this morning? Maybe not. No, we've got uh, some shaking heads. So, briefly, um, I'm going to have to give you the Jones paraphrase of these verses, and you can come and badger me about them after if you want. Third point, following Christ means dealing with the sin in the church that would harm each other. Verses 43, sorry, verses 49 to 50. Following Christ means dealing with the sin in the church that would harm each other. In these final two verses, Jesus speaks of salt three times. Well, salt in Jesus' day was, was um, uh, an instrument of, of preservation used to preserve food and of purification. So 
in verse 49 of 50, I think this is what Jesus is, is saying. Verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. In other words, I think Jesus is saying here, everyone is going to be subject to God's judgment one day. For God's people, those whose faith and repentance gives evidence of their salvation, judgment will, re will result in eternal life. Based on what Jesus has done, evidenced by a changed life in Christ's strength, we will receive eternal life. Unrepentant sinners will receive everlasting damnation, as we have seen. In verse 50, the Lord says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? And I think what Jesus is saying here is that confessing Christians and confessing churches are genuine. They're useful when they preserve, when they maintain, when they promote, when they protect, when they practice, when they teach holiness. Otherwise, like salt, which loses its saltiness, they are of no use. And then finally, the Lord says, have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. And I think the Lord is saying there that when holiness is valued, when holiness is maintained amongst Christians and in churches, peace results. The other side of the coin, if you like, where sin is tolerated or a blind eye is turned to, division is the outcome or lack of peace. So true unity in a church is never possible when sin is tolerated. So then to conclude, let's be a church that values the gospel of grace. We're to revel in it. We're to preach it. We're to teach it. We're to hold to it. We're to sing it. We're to rejoice in it. The fact that our God has done everything that we might be forgiven that we are saved by his grace, his grace alone. And yet this morning, as individual Christians and as a church, let us not forget that true salvation results in increasingly holy people. A people who increasingly hate sin, and especially the sin they see in themselves. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Let's pray together. Father God in heaven, you have called us to be a holy people. Individually as your people as Christians, collectively, corporately, as a local church. And Father, we confess before you this morning that so often we have sinned against you, that we have fallen short of your commandment that we are to be a holy people. Father, we ask this morning that you would forgive us afresh. Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ died. He gave his life that we might be forgiven. And Father, we pray again this morning that the sin that would mar our fellowship with you, Father, that you would forgive it. Father, help us to turn from our sin and to turn to you. 
Father, help us as a church and as individual Christians to be those who love and pursue righteousness and godliness and holiness. Father, help us to pursue these things because we know that they are a reflection of your character. But Father, as well, we pray that increasingly we would hate sin, hate unrighteousness, hate ungodliness. And first and foremost, we would hate these things in ourselves. So Father, be at work, we pray. Father, bring about in us as your people what is pleasing to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.